Amen. Isn't it crazy cool? Yeah. Locura. Locura cool. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> I have to preach. Okay. First Timothy 5. First Timothy 5 this morning. Uh, we will finish the fifth chapter of First Timothy. Next week we will finish the letter completely. And <clears throat> this morning, uh, I get to awkwardly talk about my job for a few minutes because that's where our text begins, okay? So, 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we learn two things here about the early church. First, this is where we get the distinction between teaching elders and ruling elders in the Presbyterian church. In chapter 3, Paul lists the ability to teach as a qualification for all elders. But some of them also labor in teaching and preaching, which clearly implies that some elders did not. And so we believe there are two types of elders in the church. Second, Paul clearly expects these teaching elders to be compensated for their labors. And he defends this by quoting both the Old Testament and the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke, which he calls Scripture. And that's fascinating because it means that the Gospels were already being accepted by the early church as holding authority. But this is why we pay pastors a salary. And personally, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, okay? But I just want to say I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to labor in the Word um, week in and week out. And my family has always felt God's provision for us uh, through His church, um, this church and other churches. And so I would like to add, however that this is not a justification for preachers to get rich by exploiting the church. And I need to say that because unfortunately that is happening in many places in the world which is shameful and dishonoring to Christ. Okay, so that's, that's that. Alright, now that brings us to another practical question that is answered by Paul. What do we do with elders who bring dishonor to the office by some moral failure or some significant error in teaching? Verse 19. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, 
so that the rest may stand in fear. All right, so again, we learn two things here. First, Paul sets up a way to protect elders from false charges. And this is a boundary that goes all the way back to the law of Moses. In general, the accusation of one person was not enough to convict someone of an offense. I said in general, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. But first of all, what I want to say is that I'm aware of the fact that this rule has been abused by many churches and cults over the years and has rightly become the subject of debate in the past 10 years or so because of the Me Too movement. Many churches have been guilty of covering up serious allegations against church leaders because, in many cases, the accuser stands alone in his or her testimony. And so the church will say, well, there's not two witnesses. We can't do anything, right? And unfortunately, false reports do happen but they are extremely rare. The problem is, there's almost never other witnesses to some of these crimes that I'm talking about, right? So what do we do? Well, thankfully, we are learning, uh, because of the growing awareness of some of these things, we're learning as churches how to better handle situations like this, and our denomination recently published um, a long paper that was put together by a special committee. And they were looking at these issues from the perspective of Scripture. And I can provide that for you if you're interested, if you'd like to read it. Um, but I want to offer just a few points from that study. And I think this is really, really important because this verse has been very mishandled. So here goes. Number one. According to the laws of most states, churches are not qualified to handle their own investigations into serious accusations of abuse. Okay? There are mandatory reporting laws that leaders have to use that govern how we should handle a lot of these types of cases. So that's number one. Number two, in cases where reporting is not required, but the accusation is serious, churches would be wise to involve an unbiased third party to investigate. Okay? And I don't think that's unbiblical. Number three, there are also special rules in our book of church order that dictate how churches should handle charges against elders and pastors specifically. So we have some things already written out. But then finally, and this is maybe the most important thing for you to hear, I want to add one point that I found especially helpful in the study, and it's this. The law concerning two or three witnesses was not universal in the Bible. Okay? I want you to look at this. This is Deuteronomy 22, beginning of verse 25. It says, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. 
she has committed no offense punishable by death, for this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, okay? And though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one, there was no one to rescue her, okay? So what do you notice about this? No witnesses, right? And yet, the Mosaic Law says very clearly, believe the woman and put the man to death. You see that? Now, what I think this clearly implies is that the Bible is anticipating that false reports of this nature are very rare. And again, we have civil laws that deal with criminal charges. My point here is to say that churches should be very careful using that one phrase, two or three witnesses, to cover up things that should not be covered up, okay? that should be dealt with appropriately. I spent a lot of time on this for a reason because it's kind of a big deal right now, and I wanted to make sure you heard me say some of these things. Okay, So Paul continues, verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So, in other words, do not automatically believe the person that you are closest to. Right? This also reminds us that a person is essentially innocent until proven guilty. Okay, so even in the church, we have due process in the things that the church ought to be handling. And then I've been asked before, what does Paul mean by elect angels? I honestly have no idea. Um, commentators suggest that he probably means the angels who are not fallen, so not, not demons, right? So the good angels, maybe. I don't know. That's the only place that really shows up. So verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. In other words, Timothy, the best way to avoid scandals in the church is to be extremely careful who you ordain in the first place. We know this from an earlier context. That's what Paul means when he says laying on hands, right? So if we put bad leaders in office we become partially responsible for their sins, their failures. Right? So this is serious business. Verse 22. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Okay? Good Presbyterians absolutely love this verse. Because we have an apostle telling a pastor, it's okay to drink a little. All right? So at first glance, what's funny is this verse seems completely out of place, right? Because, I mean, he's talking about one thing, and then he's about to talk about the same thing, and then right in the middle of it, it's like, I remembered I need to tell you something, Timothy, right? So probably Timothy was abstaining from alcohol in an effort to keep himself pure, and Paul remembered this. And so as he finishes writing verse 22 about keeping yourself pure, he's like, but Timothy, you can stop doing that because that's not what I mean. Okay? 
And so uh, wine at that time was all alcoholic. There was no such thing as grape juice. That was invented in the 1800s by the Welch's family, if you didn't know that. Um, and so wine was alcoholic, and it was used as a medicine in many situations, and it was also safer to drink in general than water. Um, and so this is why Presbyterians, including me, have been known to partake in moderation and in accordance with local laws and guidelines, okay? But, uh, but it's okay to drink a little. All right. Uh, finally, the chapter ends with this statement, verse 24. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So what Paul is saying is he recognizes that some people are really, really good at hiding their sin, but that the truth will eventually come out, right? He says, in fairness, the same thing is also true of righteousness, of good works. Um, what is his point? I think the easiest way to summarize this verse is don't judge a book by its cover. People often have better or worse character than we might assume by first impressions or an exterior, right? Don't judge a man by his outward appearance, but by his heart, his character, right? And so some have called this the iceberg principle, which means that most of what we can know about a person is under the surface. It's not immediately evident. And so Paul is instructing Timothy and the leaders of the church to use discernment. Take time to look under the surface because there's often a difference between appearances and reality. And this is a good opportunity for me to say again that what we often look for in church leaders is not necessarily what God wants us to be concerned with, right? In today's culture, what do we look for? We look for personality. We look for charisma. We're looking for a dynamic speaker who can entertain us and tell good jokes and whatever, right? Uh, but somebody with a gift of persuasion, that's who we put in leadership. Someone who looks the part of a leader because we are culturally conditioned, we're drawn towards celebrity types. But that's not biblical. Do you remember what the Lord said to Samuel when he rejected David's older brother as king? He said, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And what does Jesus say about the religious leaders in the first century, he says, Woe to you, he says this to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And so you who outwardly appear righteous to others, 
but within you were full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's pretty clear, right? What did the Apostle Paul say about his own ministry? 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he says later in 2 Corinthians, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So again, pretty clear. And finally, remember that even Jesus was not what He seemed to be. Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, it says, He who had no form or majesty that we should look on Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Right? So this was Jesus, but this was our King, right? This was our Savior. And this is a very common theme in the Bible. There are more than a hundred verses teaching us not to judge people by appearances. And yet, if we're going to be honest, this is what we do most of the time. Especially when we pick our leaders. We look for the obvious choices. And sometimes we miss the humble servants who would be really good at the job. According to Christ. And so, as we're about to nominate and Uh, go through this whole process, we've got a responsibility to dig deeper, right? To be honest with each other about who we really are. Not just the leaders in the church, but really all of us. Got a friend who says, don't be two people. Don't be two people, right? Be you. The good, the bad, and the ugly, let that be seen. Because by the grace of God, every single one in this room is a work in progress. There are Certainly things about each of us that needs to change, but hiding those things doesn't do us any good. And so the Scriptures tell us to expose our darkness to the light and bring our light into the darkness. So this is an encouragement. It's also an encouragement that we need to be very slow in judgment and patient with other people in their sin. The goal is always repentance and restoration of the relationship between a person and our holy God, right? But there are provisions here um, for people um, that it's a process. 
But there's also provisions here for people who persist in sin without repentance. That's, that's part of what the text says, right? So it's not just keep on sinning and nothing bad will happen to you, right? I mean, there is a provision here in the church that we practice something that we call church discipline. And this is something that we do not because we want to do it. And in fact, a lot of churches don't do it because they don't want to do it. Because it's hard. Because a lot of times we get things wrong. But we practice this not because we want to, but because we must. Because these provisions, these rules are in Scripture given mostly by the same apostle who preached grace, who preached repentance in Christ, right? But same guy, but he's telling us we have to do these things to protect God's church. And so this is, all of this is serious teaching. It's important teaching. This is part of what it means to fight the good fight of the faith, which he tells Timothy to do twice. There's a lot of practical wisdom here, but I want you to remember as I close, The big picture that we talked about last week still applies. Jesus is building a family in every local church. Brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, right? One in Christ. He's building something. He's building it worldwide, but He's also building it in every local church that calls on His name. And these instructions were given to help guide us toward His vision for His church as a protection, as a a cushion to help us be protected from the enemy and also to make us better able to fulfill the mission that He's called us to do together. And of course He loves us. But those whom He loves, He will also discipline, right? And so let's pray and ask for God's help in this. I know this is difficult. A lot of stuff to, to consider, and I pray you will pray over it and think over it. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank You so much uh, for loving Your church, even to the point of death. We cannot uh, sideline or fail to consider the gospel when what it's telling us is that our God was willing to give the ultimate sacrifice that we might be united to you, that we might be invited to this table where we consume spiritually the body and blood of Christ. This table is a reminder to us that there is nothing we can bring you, there's nothing we can do to earn that kind of forgiveness and love. None of us in this room is good enough, holy enough to enter into your presence without immediately being destroyed except in Christ. And You offer us that mercy. You offer us that forgiveness. We receive it with empty hands just like we receive this meal. Not because we deserve it. Father, I pray that You would make it a means of grace for us this morning that it would be 
a visible reminder of what you've done for us and who we are by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.